Welcome to this episode of The Lead, a New Lines Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Rasha Elas, recording from Beirut. And with us today is Dalal Mawad, who joins us by internet from Paris. Dalal is an award-winning Lebanese journalist and author of the just-released book, All She Lost. Dalal, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Rasha, for having me on the podcast. In your book, you detail the drama and tragedy that unfolded in Lebanon on August 4th in 2020, when hundreds of tons of ammonium nitrates that had been stored at the port in Beirut exploded. Let's start by revisiting that fateful day. I know you were still living in Lebanon at that time before you decided to move to Paris. Tell us what happened. So that day, Lebanon was reeling under the burden of an economic crisis that had started in 2019. And just like elsewhere in the world, there was a pandemic. And so I was working from home. I was a correspondent and senior producer for the Associated Press. And we were told not to come into the office. And I always say, the coronavirus saved me and saved my colleagues because our offices, the AP offices, are in downtown Beirut. And the next morning when I went to check on my office, I had no roof above my head. It it was gone. So I was working and around 6 p.m. I have this ritual with my cat. I went outside to put some food for her. And I remember hearing this this sound, which was very familiar that summer, the sound of Israeli um, jets. Um, It's, you know... Since for decades, uh, Israeli jets have been violating Lebanese airspace. Uh, We hear them often, and that summer specifically, they were flying a lot above Beirut and above Lebanon. I live on the outskirts of Beirut. I'm not in the city. I'm about 17 kilometers uh, away. And as soon as I heard that sound, which I thought was the sound of a jet, I heard a very loud explosion. It was the loudest explosion I'd ever heard in my life in Lebanon. And I've, I was there when Hariri was assassinated, the former prime minister. I was there when there were various explosions in Beirut in 2013 and 14. Um, I don't remember much from the civil war, but I was also there during various Israeli wars on Lebanon. And I'd never heard anything like that. And to be honest, I thought that the airstrike was nearby, like somewhere next to my house. I was alone and I started screaming, they hit us, they hit us, thinking that there was an airstrike nearby. I went outside and I, it didn't make sense. I couldn't see anything. Uh, My cat disappeared, by the way, um, for like 20 minutes. Started calling people. My husband was coming back home. I couldn't reach him. He was actually not far from the Beirut port. Um, He was lucky. Uh, My daughter was safe. She was on the way home as well. Um, But I couldn't reach colleagues and I started writing on a Slack group uh, at work. There's something that's happened in, in Lebanon, a very loud explosion. And I remember tweeting saying, is that an airstrike? And we were so confused. We didn't know what was happening. And then the first images started coming up on TV, on local TV. Yeah, Dalal, just to interject for one second, this is, as you describe it in your book, one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history, just to give an idea. Yeah, Yeah, this is what we didn't understand the magnitude. A lot of people didn't understand the magnitude of, of the destruction that was left by this explosion until... They went to Beirut and I couldn't get into Beirut in, in the first um, hours because of uh, 
the traffic and the roads were blocked. Um, and then in, in the early hour of the next, I had a live from the Beirut port. And I remember driving, I was alone. I had a permit because I had a press badge to, to go in. And I, it was like nothing I had seen in my life. It reminded me of Mosul. It reminded me of Homs. But also, even before I got to Beirut, by the way, I started seeing the destruction like kilometers away, glass that's broken, windows that are shattered. And then as closer I got to the epicenter, to the blast and to that eastern side of, of Beirut, that I realized that it was not just the port, as I thought. It was really half of the city was smashed, completely destroyed. So much rubble and debris everywhere. Um, people had started already cleaning up the next morning. People were looking for survivors, for loved ones. I remember not seeing any officials or police. I mean, the army at that point was just organizing the traffic, but in, in the response and the search and, and rescue, and it's not just me, it's also women in, in the book, if you read it, who speak about the absence of an official uh, response. And I didn't realize who was hurt. I knew that my colleagues were hurt because one of them called me actually a few minutes after the explosion and she was hysterical. And that's when I realized that oh, this goes beyond the port. There's something that's really weird because she lives in Jemezi, which is next to the port, but still a few kilometers away. But actually on that day, and I only realized this later on uh, because I was so overwhelmed and, and confused and absorbed by the work that I was doing, that my sister was injured, my aunts both were injured and their houses were very severely damaged so that they had to leave the city. My mom's friend was killed that day. My mom's cousin's husband also was killed. So many people I knew, the daughter of a friend of mine was killed as well. And she was only four. She's in my book, Tracy and her daughter, Alexandra. Uh, it, it was just too much being there and having to report on what's happening and yet feeling that this was a very personal story that affected me, my city and the people that I loved was probably the hardest assignment in my career as a journalist to this day. Mm -hmm. And yet we still don't know what happened, why the explosive material had been stored there, why no one raised the alarm, even though for years many politicians knew or should have known that it was there. Still, there are no answers and no justice. Do you think there ever will be? I hope so. I know that the families of the victims are fighting for justice today, even if they feel left out and, and alone and they feel like the rest of Lebanon and the world has forgotten about them. The problem of Lebanon is its impunity. And this impunity, this culture of impunity is prevalent since I, I can't even remember. I mean, my own grandmother, and I talk about her in the book, she lost her husband in, um, he was killed uh, in 1958. And it was related to a massacre that had happened some months before. It was a revenge killing, although he had nothing to do with that massacre. And I remember how she lived all of her life without justice. And so without finding any kind of peace. And I mentioned her at the beginning of the book. And then the families today are going through the same. There's a local investigation, but it's been stalled for quite some time now. The lead judge, the lead investigator, has not been able to do his work, Judge Tarek Bitar. The 
ministers and officials he's accused and called for questioning have started a series of lawsuits against him to stop him from working. And they refuse to come and to show up for questioning using political immunity. And we know based on uh, various investigations, including a Human Rights Watch investigation, that various officials at different levels and in different agencies knew about uh, that ammonium nitrate that was stored at the port uh, since 2014, arrived in 2013 to the Beirut port, and nothing was done. Although this is a very dangerous uh, type of, of chemical, it's an explosive uh, chemical, and that was clear. There were warnings in letters sent from agencies to, to another, but no one uh, took action. My hope is that justice is going to come from the international level, and this is what some of the families are looking for today. They're, lo they're working on a Human Rights Council resolution uh, into human rights violations on August 4th. This is their, uh, their way into the council. And um, they want uh, a fact-finding mission, an impartial and independent fact-finding mission. This is the resolution that they want to pass. But to this day, they don't have the majority of the votes they need. There are still some countries obstructing this or not on board, including Arab countries, the U.S., African countries, Latin American countries, etc. Yeah, but in addition to all the death and destruction caused by the explosion, it also laid bare society's inequities, especially the gender disparity, which is what you get into in your book. Even though Lebanese women have always been on the forefront of everything in their society, from taking up arms during the Civil War to rebuilding the nation and the more recent protest movement, yet like elsewhere in the region, church, mosque, and the patriarchal traditions continue to hold them back. Give us some background on that. Yeah, Rashan, I was really surprised. I went to interview these women to talk about August 4th, and I didn't expect some of the things that they told me were really surprising, that on top of having to survive the economic crisis, the explosion, and decades of conflict and violence in Lebanon, that they were also, when it comes to the Beirut blast specifically, they were struggling from uh, discrimination in personal status laws. And I'll give you an example. So there's a woman in the book, her name is Soha. Soha is a Maronite Christian. And the reason why I'm mentioning religion is because your rights as a, as a Lebanese, whether it comes to divorce, marriage, custody, inheritance, what we call personal status laws, differ from one religion, one sect actually to another. There are 15 religious courts in Lebanon for 18 official sects. And Suha, who's a Christian Maronite, lost her husband in the explosion. She told me that she had, after her husband died, she struggled with bureaucracy and legal work to have custody over her children and cash in any reparation money because in the Maronite uh, church, a woman needs to have a male custodian uh, on behalf of her diseased husband to be able to take care of her children, cash in the money, etc. And that story came up again with another woman from the same sect, uh, Karlan Hitti, who told me even that she has to give receipts to the court every time she uses the money or spends on her children. And I remember her saying, what, am I a thief or a mother? Like, they're treating me as if I was a thief. Mm 
There are other examples as well when it comes to custody again. A woman, her name is Lilian, was injured in the head and went into a coma after the explosion, mm-hmm. only to wake up and realize that her newborn baby, her son, was taken away from her by her husband's family. Her husband lives in, in Africa. And to this day, she's fighting for custody. And we don't know why her husband did what he did. It's unfair. A mother is entitled to see and have her child. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard in the Jafari court, which is the court for Shia Muslims, because they discriminate a lot more even than other courts uh, discriminate against uh, women. And her husband has a lot of political connections, so that doesn't help. There's another case also of a woman who lost her daughter, but she told me about a a domestic abuse story with her ex-husband and how hard it was for her as also a Muslim Sunni to get a divorce in, in the religious court and how her husband, after her daughter was killed, had the guts, her former husband, to show up at the funeral and ask for reparation money, whatever the mother was going to get from the state, um, if she if she gets that. The, the ironic part is that a lot of the families still didn't cash in any of, of that money. So you see that on top of all uh, the difficulties in Lebanon, women specifically have to deal with uh, discrimination and these unfair and unjust laws. And the discrimination is not just between men and women. It's among women because we don't have equal rights. It depends on your sect and on your religion. We don't have the same divorce laws, the same custody laws, the same inheritance laws, etc. Dalal, why did you decide to focus on interviewing women for your research? It was not intentional. So when I went to do interviews for this book, I didn't have a women angle. And then I realized that in the aftermath of the explosion, the stories that I wrote or filmed as a journalist, most of the voices were from women. And then in my more than a decade long career in the Middle East, really the most powerful storytellers were always women, no matter where I was in the Arab world, whether it's Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan. And I think it's because they are rarely given the opportunity to speak and tell their stories. I saw that with my grandmother, how she took any opportunity she had when she was alone with us to tell us about her pain and her story. But she never really spoke about this publicly. She was very reserved. I think women are seeking a safe platform to tell their stories, to speak. And when I realized that, I thought, this is a history book. This is a book about Lebanon's modern history. It's not just a book about the explosion. It's also about Lebanon's unprecedented collapse the past four years. And women are have been active players in history. They always are. But we just don't know that because history is never written from their perspective. This is why I wanted this to be a women-led narrative. I wanted this book to be for women and by women. And it's you also see that in the style of the writing where I allow them to own their stories as much as possible through chunks of uncensored narrations, a bit like oral history. And I think this is a perspective that we are lacking in history writing around the world, not just in Lebanon and the Arab world. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I find that also in my reporting in the region, women just tell more vivid stories and more compelling and colorful. And it got me thinking just now when you were talking, it got me thinking, yeah, the men tell 
a lot of the stories, but usually they tell it in the public sphere. They write the history, the historic narrative. And, and historically, there have been the reporters, the journalists. I mean, not our generation. Of course, there are a lot of women reporters and journalists and writers and authors and historians and so on. But historically, they've it's been the men who have told the stories, whereas the women have told stories in the private sphere. So there's been that divide between the public sphere and the private sphere. And I guess what you're doing here is you're bringing those stories that would normally be told in the private sphere, you're bringing it to the public sphere. Yeah, exactly. And this is what I mean when I mention my grandmother is that she would really like when she's alone with us and we were really young children, uh, she would tell us about how her husband was killed again and again. She would repeat the story so many times and she would cry. And I felt the same kind of helplessness that I felt being with her when I sat with these women. It was a privilege to be around them and to listen to their stories and to tell those stories. But at the same time, it felt like a burden. It was not easy being there. Some women spoke for the first time since the explosion about their stories and details. And the emotional toll was also quite a lot. Uh, a lot of these women were traumatized still processing what happened. And I realized that actually they have been traumatized all their lives. It's trauma on top of trauma. They never got the time to heal, to process, to find justice, to find peace. A lot of women I sat down with took me back to the civil war and wanted to talk about the civil war and what happened in the civil war or made so many references to the civil war. So it says a lot about their state of survival and healing. Mm -hmm. What are some moments that have stuck with you that haunt you or give you hope from your time interviewing them? Most of the stories haunted me, to be honest. Many of these women I sat with for long hours, I went back to... I mentioned this in the book, I suffered from insomnia in the fall that followed that summer of research. I think it was just too much to take in by myself. But there are two stories that are very painful. They're also very gory. It's the story of Melanie, who survived, but had to go through so much that day to help others. She had to carry the fingers of, of a neighbor. Uh, carry a dead man for about 15 minutes. Uh, she needed help herself. She was heavily injured and she couldn't get any help. And she was heavily uh, bleeding until uh, someone looked at her and, and saved her. I know that Melanie is unable to read the book. I sent it to her and she told me I'm not ready. She's been through so much. And there's Soha, my mother's cousin. Her story is very painful because Soha was in the hospital at St. George Hospital. Her daughter had um, cancer, a type of a rare type of blood cancer and was getting treated. And her husband uh, lived in Nigeria and he was back after many months because of the, the pandemic and all the flights that were canceled. And he was sitting by his daughter's bed and he died. He died by, by that bed and her daughter had to see her father die. And Soha, her story is really tragic. She tried to save her husband and she just couldn't. Mm. 
There's a scene that I'll never forget, Suha going up and down nine floors in the hospital barefoot to get help for her husband, and she couldn't save him. So many stories are really tragic. I mean, even Tracy, she lost her mother on her wedding day, and then a few years later, her daughter was killed in the explosion. Or you have the stories of all these mothers who tried to save and protect their children during the Civil War when they were newborns and babies, and then they ended up dying on August 4th. That's very tragic. Uh, or Carlen, which I already mentioned, she lost her husband, her brother, and her cousin. They were all uh, part of the Beirut Firefighters Brigade. Yeah. I could go on and on, really. The the tragedies are, are endless. I mean, for hope, I think... What about stories of hope? I think there are stories of hope that are that speak a lot about the stamina of these women and how strong they are. And it's mainly the doctors and the nurses in, in the book. There's Pamela, the nurse who saved three premature babies and had to walk with these three premature babies for at least an hour and a half, hopping on in, in cabs and then going down and then walking. And one of them slipped from her hand and then she, she saved him. And another one had an apnea and she saved him until she made it to a hospital outside of Beirut. And she put all three of them in an incubator. That's a mind-blowing story. Pamela was a hero. They survived. Yeah, they survived. There's also two other doctors. One of them gave birth to two women on that day, so giving life in a time where there was only death. All of these women who did heroic work, to me, these were hopeful stories. And then you have the women who are still fighting for justice despite everything. Tracy, Tatiana, who have not given up yet on their loved ones because they feel like they owe it to them and that justice is their right. Uh, there's a lot of hope there in, in their perseverance and their fight for justice. Yeah. The explosion, of course, was not the one event that has affected the lives of these women. Lebanon had already been suffering from an economic collapse. And before that, there were, before even after the civil war, there were several wars and there was the Israeli invasion in 2006 and just all sorts of instability and turmoil and on again and off again. And, and then it's hopeful again and everybody comes back to Lebanon to rebuild and everybody's excited and then something else happens and on. Let's talk about this spirit of what people in Lebanon like to say resilience. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a part that I call the myth of resilience in, in the book. I don't believe that the Lebanese are resilient, and I know this might upset some people, but I think it's counterproductive at this stage to say we are resilient, because resilience, based on what I found, is, yes, it's the ability to keep on going, but to adapt to better conditions, to find better alternatives, to move forward, not to get stuck or move backwards. The Lebanese today, their life is a life of survival. And if you read many of the stories in the book, you will realize this. They spend their days fighting for their basic rights. This to me is not resilience. The Lebanese have not healed, as I've mentioned before. It's trauma on top of trauma. They haven't found justice. They haven't found peace. So to me, this is not resilience. And I think convincing ourselves that we are resilient is actually counterproductive because we 
become complacent and we say, that's it, we need to adapt to the status quo, to the situation. We can do better. It is what it is. Lebanese have this phrase in Arabic, they say, this is Lebanon. And I think it says a lot about their sense of hopelessness. People have become hopeless in, in Lebanon. And that, again, is not resilience to me. I think really their life is a life of survival and just fighting every day for various things. And I think the only people in Lebanon who are resilient are the politicians. They come out out of every tragedy in Lebanon even stronger. I don't think they've been harmed the way others have, the way average uh, citizens in Lebanese have, including when it comes to the financial crisis, which in my opinion is another crime that needs to, to be punished. And someone needs to be held accountable for that. All the Lebanese lost their savings. And a lot of the women talk about the crisis all the time because it's part of their daily lives. So, yeah, we were told to believe that we are resilient because I think it, it serves the political establishment. It's, it makes you accept your situation as is and makes you believe that you're strong enough and that you're still standing on your two feet and that's enough, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about this uh, idea of resilience a few days ago, you and I, and uh, you mentioned something that when you were doing research for your book, you also researched the idea of resilience in biology, in nature, in in evolution. Tell us more about that, how it informed your idea about resilience and how the people view it in Lebanon. Yeah, so there's, I stumbled upon a a psychologist, I don't have his name, but who compares resilience to nature. And he gives the example of when there's a fire and trees burn, that after a while, some new branches come up and some, it's not the same tree. It's, it's new branches, it's greenery, it's something new that comes out of that, of the, what has been burned. And I don't see this in Lebanon. I don't see something new or better today, quite on on the contrary. I think people are just adapting uh, and conforming. Where nature is resilient, yes, but the, the Lebanese are not. And how do you see the new generation that's now growing up in Lebanon? I'm worried because first you have a lost generation because of what's happening in the education the public education sector is in a very dire situation. A lot of dropouts, young children having to work to support their families. I'm also worried because we don't have a collective memoir of what happened. And this generation specifically doesn't know the civil war and has no memory whatsoever of it. And that's dangerous because these are the generations that are easily brainwashed and radicalized. But in the past, I mean, in the last elections, I wouldn't say it's the young generation, but it's more, if you want, the youngest generation in terms of those who can vote. I saw some hope. The youngest were, at least abroad here in Paris, I didn't vote in in Lebanon, were voting for change. But I, I don't know. At the end of the day, you know, 90% of Lebanon's parliament reproduced itself in the last elections. So it's not a very good sign. 
But you actually bring up an interesting point that this generation does not have access to an agreed upon narrative or history or story of their own nation, of who the Lebanese people are and what the country has gone through. It's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the Lebanese uh, Ministry of Education has not really unified the narrative on what happened during the Civil War. So Lebanese children learn a different story about the Civil War in their own country, depending on what school they attend. Am I correct? Uh, actually, they don't learn about the Civil War at all. So all history books in Lebanon schools end in 1943 with Lebanon's independence from the French mandate. So our knowledge of uh, Civil War is based on stories from our parents, whatever they tell us, books we reread, movies that we watch, things we hear from secondary sources, etc., to this day, there's no history book that teaches kids about the Civil War, yes, and all of our recent history, unfortunately. And this is why I'm saying I'm really worried. I was talking to someone who runs an NGO in Tripoli, and she's been working on de-radicalizing Jabal Mahsin and Bebe Tabene. These are two neighborhoods uh, that they're Alawites and Sunnis, and they've been fighting each other since the Civil War. And... It's uh, they're often used as in, in proxy conflicts, etc. And she was telling me that there's a new generation now, and they don't have a memory of the earlier fighting, or even ten or fifteen years ago when people used to take arms and kill each other on the streets. And they are easily radicalized today, and they're very dangerous because they're also unemployed again and not educated. So. You have all of the other problems with the economic crisis. So it worries me. It worries me a lot because there's not enough awareness. And this is why I was so in a rush to write my book, because I wanted us, the Lebanese, the average Lebanese, uh, to own our narrative about what happened on August 4th, because I know that there will be no official work uh, done to document uh, this this can prove as evidence, but it can also just prove uh, or, or, or be a, a collective memoir for the Lebanese and by the Lebanese. And in this case, it's written by women, but still, because we know that narratives have been distorted throughout the past by the politicians to serve their agendas. Mm -hmm. And Dalal, I know you made a decision to whether or not to remain in Lebanon after the explosion. Tell us more about that. I don't want to put words in your mouth. You tell us how you made the decision and what you decided. Yeah, the explosion was a turning point in my life. And my life literally changed after that day. I decided that there was no way I would stay. I had a daughter. I still have a daughter who's seven now. She was four back then. And when I saw the trauma in her eyes on that eve, I was like, I can't believe I managed to transmit the trauma to her. All the way from my grandmother to Yasma, my kid. I can't have her live the life that we lived, which is full of trauma, living your life thinking that having no power, nor electricity is normal, having instability is normal. I want her to have a sense of normalcy and not to worry uh, about her safety, her rights. I know that things can happen even here in Europe. I mean, she could get hurt here, but there's justice and accountability here. I know that 
she's not going to be hurt or something would happen to her and no one would care the way it is in, in Lebanon, to put it so, so simply. So I wanted to break those cycles of violence. And I felt like the only way was to get out of the country for now. So yeah, I, I left and I, I came to Paris and I've been here for three years. I go back and forth a lot because I want her and to have a connection with her roots and her country. My family is still there. My husband stayed in, in Lebanon. So we've, we were separated without wanting to get separated. But it was a common decision that the priority is to keep her safe. She's not safe in Lebanon and we had to get her out. Yeah, and the irony is whether or not you decide to stay or leave Lebanon, your experience is still part of the Lebanese experience because so many Lebanese live in the diaspora, right? So it almost doesn't matter if you stay or go. Yes, the context is different. The opportunities may be different, so on and so forth. But this is all part of the overarching Lebanese experience today, is it not? Yeah, it is. And I never thought I'd be a part of the Lebanese diaspora. We grow up knowing that there are more Lebanese abroad than there are in Lebanon, that there were all of these massive waves of immigration. This is the fifth one that I'm part of, according to my research. And yeah, it's ironic, but it, it, it is what it is. It is the Lebanese experience. And so many Lebanese throughout history have been forced to leave because of the conditions back home. Mm -hmm. It's hard to disconnect from Lebanon. And I talk about this a lot in, in the book, because when I go back, I don't fit anymore. And I feel like I've lost the Lebanon that I once knew. So it's a lot of nostalgia, if you want, bitter, bitter feelings, because it's very nostalgic. And, and I look around me and it's no longer the life I, I had or the country that I knew. But then also when you are abroad, it's not easy because you also don't fit and it doesn't feel like home yet. So your identity or your sense of identity is a bit lost. It's torn between different places. And I've come to a realization that maybe that's it. That's what my identity is. I don't need to fit in one place. It doesn't have to be just one place or one country, etc. That it's wholesome as is uh, while it is torn. I don't know if I'm making any, any sense. But yeah, like... the. It, it is what it is, and I'm trying to make the best of, of that experience, including when you have a child and you want to make sure that they still have roots and a sense of belonging wh wherever they are. So then how do you envision raising your daughter? Because that's always a big question for people who sometimes feel that they are in between cultures or splitting their time between different countries or whatever. How do you want to raise her in terms of what her understanding is of Lebanon, what her understanding is of the history of Lebanon, what languages she speaks at home, and so on? Yeah, I'm glad you're raising this question because it's very important for me how I raise her. And as I already mentioned, that I want her to have a connection with her roots and with Lebanon. So I speak to her in Arabic at home and she's learning Arabic while in France. Her dad speaks to her in English and she's also learning French. And I'm, I try as much as I can to explain to her what's going on in Lebanon, why we left. There's a section in, in the book about this. I'm having conversations with her and, and I write about them. 
Yesma is very aware. Uh, even yesterday, she asked me, why Why can I go to Lebanon for the vacation? Because uh, we were supposed to go to, to Beirut now. And I just got back yesterday because I don't want her to go because of what's going on in, in Gaza and uh, the the situation in the south of Lebanon. And I had to explain to her, I mean, w- without traumatizing her or worrying her because she's an anxious child. But I don't want my kid to live in a bubble. And... I also grew up being very sensitive to what is just and unjust, uh, to other people's rights. And I see a lot of that in her already. Mm-hmm. Um, her teacher already told me yesterday that she stands up in, in class when something is she thinks is unjust or, or unfair, and she's very vocal about it. So this is what I want her to have, no matter what. And we talk about Lebanon. We go to Lebanon a lot. Her grandparents are there. She spends most of her summers there. And I know that there's a connection, and I'm very keen on, on keeping that. But at the same time, I want her to be open to the world and open to embrace different experiences, whether it's here or If she wants to go elsewhere later on, she has an American passport as well. We're like this as her parents. We travel a lot. We've lived abroad. So our experiences are also very open and international. But yeah, the roots are important. And it hurts a bit because I know she has a memory of Lebanon that is a Lebanon, a broken Lebanon, a Lebanon that's hurting. My daughter doesn't remember any good days in, in Lebanon. When her memory starts with the uprising in 2019, not being able to go to school, the explosion, the economic crisis, things we've we've experienced. So it hurts me a bit that she has, she, that's the image she has left of the country. So whenever we go back, I try to make the best out of it. So there's something positive that comes out. Because you have some good memories of Lebanon. I do. And I always say that my parents and my mom did their best for us to have a normal life, although nothing was normal in Lebanon growing up there. We always had these cycles of stability and instability, war and truth and peace. But I had good days. I had a good childhood. And and I thank my parents for, for that. I also had trauma, Russia, in my life in Lebanon. And I talk about it. I think every Lebanese has had a traumatized childhood because we're all part of that. It's a collective trauma. And there are the best days of Lebanon, which I don't know, I've only heard of and read about and seen in in black and white pictures are the 50s and the 60s. And I found this woman who ends my book. She's 86 today. And I wanted to end with her because... She was my trip in back into these days, my journey back to, into these days that I didn't know. And as much as I don't want to romanticize about the 50s and the 60s because there were already problems back then, it was really nice to take that trip back in time through the eyes of Coco, Cosette, and to see that there were some bright and happy days. And I, I don't know, it's it's pure nostalgia at, at this stage. Mm-hmm. But but it's nice. I wanted to know more about about these days and what it was like. They were short-lived, unfortunately. But everyone says they were good days. Yeah. Well, Dalal, as a journalist, we're trained to sit back and observe and we remove ourselves. And in time, as we gain experience, we just, our psychology becomes so that we're 
you know, we literally just keep ourselves out of the story as much as possible. And sometimes that's helpful for us, for our mental health and emotional well-being. But sometimes it's not. And I'm curious about your experience as a journalist and as a Lebanese woman covering this story and the stories before it. How has that impacted you? Oh, I think working in the Middle East, you, you probably know what I'm talking about, is, is difficult. It's very difficult because there are tragedies all the time. And covering the Beirut explosion, as I mentioned earlier, felt very personal. I just couldn't distance myself. I couldn't keep that distance with the story. It's impacted my mental health in, in various ways, for sure. At least the, the explosion has, but I know that in the past I covered refugees for more than six years. And it all came out when I started doing therapy, that the toll of these stories that I had to take in again and again, it, it was considerable. It was, I just never knew how to process it until I, I started therapy. And this feeling of helplessness that you leave with every time you do an interview or you meet people or you go to a conflict zone. I put my heart into the stories that I cover and maybe it's a bad thing. I'm, I probably don't know how to detach more than other journalists because we've had these conversations, like colleagues and I. And sometimes it doesn't help. Like, um, I stay in touch with the characters. I check on them. I go back to them. I, I don't know. I know that maybe it's not my job as, as a journalist and I've grappled with that, but I feel like we are humans before we are anything else. And it's why I do what I do, including the women in this book. I'm still in touch with so many of them. I'm even helping some of them. My proceeds from this book will go to those who are really struggling. And there are some who are really struggling. And I mean, I try now. I know how to process and how to cope. It's better than before. It's something that you learn. And we all say that. But somehow there are stories that still get to you even like now watching what's happening in gaza from a distance i think my mental health everyone's mental health is not doing well at all um there's a sense of injustice being having been born and raised in, in the middle east um, and having seen so much it's probably one of the reasons why i wanted to become a journalist the main reason I grappled with a lot of guilt, feelings of guilt after the explosion and after leaving. And it's one of the reasons why I also wanted to write this book. I felt like I owed it to myself and to the Lebanese to tell these stories. But yeah, I think when it comes to the Beirut explosion, it was an amalgam of me as a citizen, as a Lebanese, as women, as a human, as a journalist. And I just couldn't separate one from another. And it's why I also became part of the book. I'm in there. This is not a typical journalistic book or, or essay. It's, it's not a objective. I don't believe in objectivity, but it's not even objective. Like I'm, my voice is in there and even my, the historical chapters are my own reading of history. And I say that nowhere do I pretend that I'm, uh, um, I'm being objective and, uh, et cetera. But, it's a truthful book, even if I'm not, I think it's very truthful. 
there's nothing in there that's not true. It's just I'm part of the story, although we are told as journalists not to become part of, of a story. I made a, a conscious editorial decision to be part of the story. Just to bring this full circle, you mentioned at the beginning that uh, on the day of the explosion, you were just going through your regular routine and you were about to feed the cat when the explosion happened. What happened to the cat? The cat disappeared. I couldn't find her. But, you know, I was so consumed with my fear and my concerns, I didn't even look for her. 25 minutes later, I'm like, where's Caramel, the cat? And she like ends up showing up, but... She, she was just gone. She was so terrified that animals have this instinct and she went hiding somewhere. Mm-hmm. And what's also ironic is that I had a dog who was being treated in a hospital and the hospital blew up. So Biscuit, our dog, was traumatized for two days. We thought he was dying because he wouldn't do much. He slept all the time. He was like, he looked so down. And when we asked the doctor, he was like, oh, no, he's fine. He's just very traumatized from what happened. So oh, poor can you imagine like animals... Yeah. Yeah. Um, Animals like babies. I mean, yeah, that's just pure trauma. They have no verb. Yeah. I mean, with Yasma, we had to do a lot of drawing because she was already doing therapy, like play therapy. She was traumatized. And I mean, she saw some of the aftermath, but it was mainly the adult's reaction that traumatized her. She was with her grandmother who started Uh, crying and she became hysterical because we couldn't get in touch with my husband and it's that that scares children it's seeing the adults lose control because they think the adults are there to protect them and when they're so vulnerable children feel so insecure well i'm very grateful that you and your loved ones and pets are safe and sound oh yeah nothing compared to what happened to other people seriously Russia like I'm so grateful I'm so 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 grateful and so lucky yeah and of course we have to also live with the guilt the survival guilt and it's almost like (laughs) it's just a never ending you're grateful for being okay but you're guilty and you feel just devastated for others what are you gonna do yeah yeah Dalal Mawad author of All She Lost Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rasha, again for having me and for shedding light on the book and these women's stories. This episode was produced by me and edited by Joshua Martin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>